Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. Hello, everyone. My name is Emily Ma, and I'd like to welcome you to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series presented by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, which is the entrepreneurial center in Stanford School of Engineering. Also sponsored by BASIS, the Business Association of Stanford Entrepreneurial Students. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Jessica McKellar to ETL. Jessica McKellar is the founder and CTO of Pilot.com, an accounting firm powered by software that has raised more than $160 million in venture capital. She earned her bachelor's and master's degree in, in computer science from MIT. And prior to Pilot, she was on the founding teams of two other startups, Splice and Zulip. She also teaches Python at California's San Quentin State Prison. And through that experience, she became passionate about building bridges between the tech industry and individuals impacted by the prison system. So that's definitely something we're going to talk about. Welcome, Jessica. Let's start by maybe an introduction to everyone of what Pilot.com is and what kind of users it serves for small businesses and startups. Let's start with that. Sure. Pilot's how I retire. That's so the high level. That's what, no. Uh, yeah. So Pilot is uh, basically an, an accounting firm, but one that works in a very special way uh, because a lot of the work that we do behind the scenes to deliver accounting services, bookkeeping, tax, CFO services, other advisory support, a lot of that work it happens in software. Uh, which is good for us, but it's actually good for the customer as well, because it means we can deliver a higher quality, more consistent experience. And we can also do things with data that nobody else can do to reflect kind of insights back to the customer in a way that nobody else can. Um, so we, we've, we've built a business around bringing small businesses into the 21st century uh, with their finance and accounting needs, um, which has been a, a deeply satisfying thing to work on over the past uh, five years uh, through uh, a bunch of growth in our customer base, um, getting to work with a lot of small business owners and startups and to really uh, viscerally experience their pain and then and then hopefully solve it for them uh, through some healthy fundraising. We're, we're a kind of post Series C company. Uh, and then just working with a really incredible team of uh you know, really uh, incredible finance and accounting experts who are all like in-house leveraging the software to deliver the service. And then also a really talented R&D team that's building out the the, the automation behind what we do. Um, yeah, so we solve your finance and accounting back office as a small business, and we help you be competitive with, uh, you know, bigger companies who have a lot more facilities to take care of this internally than the typical small business does. It's amazing. We're going to get come back to pilot.com in a little bit. Uh, maybe we can rewind in, a, I think, a number of years to when you uh, were at MIT. So you've had this incredible, incredible career with these three startups. But, you know, all of us were once a freshman. And I'm curious if we wind back the clock. Like, how did you decide to study computer science? Like, what did you uh, experience that led you to wanting to do a startup, your first one? And like, what else happened during that time uh, that inspired you to take this path? Yeah, absolutely. And I just a little tiny bit of background on me. I um, uh, kind of born in California, grew up in Nashville, um, went to a public school in Nashville. My dad's a musician. My mom is, oh, hi, mom. I'm off my watching. Hi, mom. Mom is like a free spirit who's done a lot of things in her life. <laughs> um, 
so I, um, I, you know, I didn't know anybody who was interested in programming while I was growing up. Although I would say that my dad had a strong affinity for computers because of what you could use them for, for music. Um, I actually thought I was going to be a chemist and my first degree is actually in chemistry. Uh, and I, while going through the, the chemistry undergrad program at MIT, I, I accumulated a lot of friends who were in the CS department because that's the largest department <laughs> at the school. And, um, you know, honestly, I think I was, I was kind of was watching them out of the corner of my eye while I was going through my chemistry studies. And I saw them learning what seemed like a very powerful, very general toolkit of tools to solve a broad range of problems in the world through programming, through software engineering. And I decided that I wanted to have that kind of toolkit as well. Chemistry is great. It's a very kind of it's its own discipline, though, and I think that the 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 fact that 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 software engineering and program can be can be leveraged in in, in every discipline at this point uh, just became attractive to me. So I, I ended up uh, kind of dabbling with a couple of courses and really fell in love with it and ended up pursuing um, a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and you know, certainly it's how I've paid the bills ever since. How about the startup side of things? Like you know, coming out of MIT with a computer science degree a bachelor's and a master's, right? A lot of opportunities. So why go right into startups? Yeah, well, I <laughs> I mean, I've had the great honor and pleasure of working with my my co-founders at Pilot, Jeff and Museum, for um, 15 years at this point. We met in MIT's computer club, the Student Information Processing Board, SIPI, MIT's computer club. Uh, and our first company out of school was uh, centered around Jeff's master's thesis. Uh, he had worked on some very, very cool, like very fun kind of deep tech for rebootless kernel updates on Linux that we built uh, totally bootstrapped into a profitable company called Splice that was ultimately acquired by Oracle. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's incredible, honestly, to think about from where I sit today, like the fact that we we happened to meet each other through the computer the computer club and and have just had such an incredibly productive relationship ever since it just it seems so blessed and 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 fortuitous but it yeah it just it just kind of happened jeff's like i've got this technology we think we can productize it we're like let's let's do it let's make you know we have nothing to lose you know fresh out of school we have like no money we have you know we uh Quick sidebar: I, I, uh, I was a technical advisor to the HBO show Silicon Valley. If anybody's seen it, and um, a bunch of small like narratives in in the show actually come from our experience building Casewise. Like we, you know, we were like running the company out of this disgusting apartment in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where everybody lived. And it was a very formative, wonderful initial startup experience. Also, um, just like the t- complete, like kind of wild west, fresh out of school experience too. Um, yeah. So we just, we decided we were going to do it and we did it and we've been together ever since. Oh my God. Uh, I will come back to that as well, because that's something really <laughs> unique. You've built three companies now with uh, Jeff and Wasim and, uh, it does sound incredibly magical with these very humble roots that you've had. With Case Place, though, you were acquired by Oracle, I believe. So 
what was that experience like being acquired and then deciding again that you would launch out? Like what happened during that period? Yeah, the Oracle acquisition experience was funny because Oracle's an enormous company. And so like they've developed an acquisition team that is able to ingest like $2 billion acquisitions. And then they kind of apply that machinery towards also like 13 person startups. Um, I guess before we get to the actual acquisition itself, you know, I think when we were starting, you know, case splice is a very exciting, interesting, deep technology, but ultimately for a pretty narrow audience, the audience is basically companies that have a lot of computers uh, who, for, for which downtime on those computers is problematic uh, so this could be if you're like a hosting company or a, a supercomputing cluster. No, I mean, nobody wants to be the person who's like the supercomputing cluster is down for maintenance. So, um, you, you know, they're like high need in a relatively niche market. And I think if that is the shape of problem you're solving, uh, being there's only so, so much you can grow. Like you, you kind of you have to have a plan for what's going to happen at the end of the day. And you can stay independent if you can turn that into it, if you can keep it a standalone profitable business. But I think an acquisition is always a pretty likely outcome for this, this shape of company. And, um, and so we, I think we knew that that was, that was probably always on the horizon. Um, And, you know, who was going to be the acquirer? We didn't know up front. It ended up being, being Oracle. Oracle treated us very well. Uh, through the acquisition process and in the the time that we spent there uh, post acquisition, uh, but the acquisition process itself was was very funny because there were like there were more people on the acquisition team at Oracle than there were like employees at at Caseplay. I think actually the number of team leads on the calls with us exceeded the number of employees at Caseplay's. Um, yeah, although one thing just to like tie this back to pilot, one thing that they actually called out from us during the acquisition process was this <laughs> the state of our our books. Um because we uh I mean we we encountered a thing that 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 every founder and and small business owner encounters which is like you have to take care of your your finance and accounting needs at a minimum for compliance purposes. Like you have to file taxes and to file taxes you need books. And also, hopefully, you actually want to know how much money you're spending and making to like make decisions about the business. And you know, we we had like, who are you supposed to use to to solve those problems? There's like no clear. You know, at the time, there was no clear best in class solution to this. And so we did a thing that a bunch of business owners do, which is uh, we bought a copy of QuickBooks for Dummies, and we bought a copy of at the time QuickBooks Desktop because QuickBooks Online did not exist, and um, we also, okay, the thing that was maybe a little unusual is we wrote some some software to like auto reconcile our books ourselves. Um, but we we kind of built up this machinery to, to, to close the books ourselves. And the Oracle team was very impressed by our fastidiousness with this, mm-hmm. um, which I, maybe was like a premonition of things to come. Um, so that problem had been unsolved for us when we were starting that company. So we did it ourselves. And... Um, yeah, that set us up for the rest of the journey to to what Pilot is today, in a sense. That's that's such a great story. You know, we never quite know that the things that we might do that are small to make our lives easier ultimately become the thing that we focus on. And we can never quite uh, 
predict the future, but when we look backwards, the tapestry reveals itself. So thank you for being so sort of colorful and detailed in sharing that story. Um, however, between Oracle and Pilot being founded, uh, you had another chapter in there. So uh, what was that about? Uh, yes. So we uh, had a had a good stint at Oracle. It might have been a year and a day. <laughs> and then uh, we kind of reconvened in one of our living rooms, knowing that we still had some startup left in us. And we, you know, we wanted to think about, is, is there another problem that we think needs to be solved where we think we're the right people to solve it? And we uh, ultimately ended up building, you said taking some funding for and, and, and building kind of going into beta with getting some, some customers for uh, a, a company called uh, Zulip, like Tulip with a Z. Uh, that that is actually uh, kind of like Slack before Slack existed. Now we've probably mostly heard of Slack, and we probably mostly have not heard of Zulip. So that tells you something about kind of the outcomes for this. But um, actually, some of the ideas in Zulip uh, around uh, like kind of threaded chat have be like sort of now exist in other systems uh, in a way that's satisfying to see. Um, but this this came out of again our, our own kind of lived experience as as collaborators in a business context and feeling like the, the, the tools that existed at the time were not meeting our needs. In particular, if you wanted to have substantive conversations uh, over chat, conversations that you, you, could, you could go back to as kind of a repository of useful information, if you wanted to do that, you needed more structured information in, in, in the chats themselves. And, and so we, we, we built a like a business chat solution around that that idea. Um, Zulip actually lives on today. Interestingly, like it's 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 like the well, um, Zulip was ultimately acquired by Dropbox as part of Dropbox's interest in being a more foregrounded uh, application for how businesses collaborate to get work done together. So, kind of part of a thesis for Dropbox that has included other acquisitions. Um, it, uh, it it ended up being the case that. Um, uh, there was a fourth. There was a fourth co-founder. His name is Tim, um, who uh, actually got the IP for Zulip released by Dropbox, and he continues on today with Zulip as a very robust open source project uh, that that has like a like a support like a company built around support for for that open source chat product. Um, so Zulip lives on today, which is also very gratifying to see um, with a, like a very healthy uh, kind of open source contingent behind it. Um, yeah, so Zulip was acquired by Dropbox and uh, spent uh, a while at Dropbox. I was there for, I think, three and a half years myself. Um, Jeff and Wissing were there and um, did get back together circa early 2017 and said, one more time. There's like one more time. We really this time want to tackle a large market um, with the goal of really seeing how far we can take this with, with solving, a, again, a, a business need, like really, really reflecting on uh, what has changed, what hasn't changed over the past 10 years. And if there's a, a, a real acute business problem that we're well positioned to solve, given our experience. Um, and that's how Pilot happened. That is that is so cool. 
Let me step back for a second. So it's been you, Jeff, and Wasim, and you sort of naturally fallen into um, being CTO, COO, and CEO. And yet you were all, I believe, computer science and or electrical engineering majors. So all of you had gone through that sort of technical experience. How did you figure out that those are the roles that you would take? Like, what was the process for that? Were there like ways of working that didn't work that were informative? And then it seems like you guys have this incredible magical way of working now as a result of having gone through many iterations. So maybe you could share a little bit about that journey. Yeah. And you know, that, that stratification did happen very early. I mean, even at Case Place, Wasim was the salesperson, like he was the salesperson. Um, and today, you know, I mean, everything kind of rolls up to the CEO technically, but he, he really lives in, on the demand side with sales and marketing. Uh, Jeff really lives with GNA and I really live with R&D and ops. Um, I think it, it really, it, it, I mean, it really, it comes from our, our personalities and interest. Uh, Wasim loves talking to people. He loves talking to customers. He loves sales. Um, Jeff reads corporate tax law for fun. So he's kind of, kind of a behind the scenes kind of GNA operations kind of person. And then I've, um, you know, I, I've just, I've always uh, loved the being on the product side and on the technology side. And I think that's been really gratifying at Pilot is actually really leaning into the operations side of things as well. Um, so we, we have these phenomenal teams doing the monthly close, tax prep, CFO, AP, AR, et cetera, um, and, and really, uh, supporting those teams working with the software to deliver the service has been has been a really um interesting texture on top of just like a pure software uh business so i, I really enjoy that personally but uh, yeah we you know we kind of it, it just kind of happened i mean even really just that case flies you know with was doing sales jeff was taking care of a lot of the kind of legal back office stuff and i i stayed kind of stayed on the r d side um, and it, it served us well, I think. I think you're incredibly fortunate because you all had sort of natural affinities and that was very clear. Um, that's not always the case, right? You might have two founders that have overlapping skills. Um, speaking of which, I'm actually really curious, you know, one of the questions that we always sort of uh, talk about and sort of discuss and explore is, you know, are there benefits and disadvantages of co-founding and are there benefits and disadvantages of going solo? So, Curious about your thoughts. I mean, I, I I think you have a bias, obviously, but like, you know, are there are there downsides to co-founding? Is there hard? Are there has there been anything challenging about that? Um. Well, so so first, like, why do startups not work out? Maybe the number one reason is probably you're you're like not tackling a market or a problem that you can actually build a profitable business around, can't get traction around. But a pretty common follow up to that is, is is probably around founder dynamics and like issues with execution that come off of the founder dynamics. So I think it, it's super important that 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 a founding team and then as you grow the broader executive team, you, you're building out a well-rounded team that's um, very high trust, uh, is very values aligned and where folks have clear swim lanes. Um, so that's super important. And if you like, don't think that you can do that. Uh, maybe being part of a founding team is, is like not the right plan for you. 
um, being a solo fan, people, I mean, people do it all the time. And uh, I mean, my hat's off to them because it, it seems very hard. Um, partially because when things aren't going well, like, especially if you're pre product market fit, you just like, don't even know if this is going to work. Um, you have like nobody to, you know, be depressed with <laughs> about it. And, and there, you know, it's, you know, if, 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 if you're down, your co-founders can bring you back up. And if they're down, you can bring them back up and having someone who's really there, there with you on it. Um, it certainly has been so important to to me personally in these experiences across these companies. Um, that's just me. I mean, everybody's different. So I, clearly there are many very successful um, solo, solo founders, but uh, I think having, having folks to share the burden with has felt pretty important to me. Let me dig in a little bit. So um, you've been together for 15 years as this incredible team what happens when you disagree? Like, do you have like a sort of ritual, a sort of a way of making decisions or like, I, like what happens? Oh yeah. And I should clarify it. Like, and Jeff would, he would be fine with me saying this because he, I've said it in front of him before. Jeff and I didn't get along for like the first seven years of our relationship together as, as like kind of business owners together. Um, and you know, I think what that speaks to is that, I mean, a, a lot of what, what running a company is about is about just interpersonal stuff. And, um, and that's something that you get better at over time. Like you, you this is like a muscle that you practice. Um, one of the most transformative experiences that I had as an adult was actually at Dropbox in an executive coaching program that they they kind of deployed with various departments, including the, the engineering uh, leadership team, and you know they run you they you sit in the fire with 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 that type of executive coaching program like that you get a bunch of like very detailed you know like they send questionnaires to everybody who works with you like your manager your peers the people who report to you like everybody gets like a 200 question questionnaire where they're rating you on a five point scale on like every possible attribute of your leadership style and and then a, an executive coach distills that into themes like where are your strengths what are behaviors that are not serving you well or not serving you well anymore and you like process that together and then you decide how you want to come out the other side of it. But, uh, you know, those types of reflections, they make you, a, or they made, sorry, I say this, at least for me, it made me a better leader, but it also made me like a better partner in my personal life because it really forces you to reflect on how you engage with dif you know, difficult situations, how you engage with conflict. Um, so... Yeah, I mean it's like it's like a pro, it's a it's a pro, it's a continuous investment in oneself and the team to be better and better as a as a people manager and as a leader. That happened that was a really transformative experience for me and I think I benefited from it, you know, coming into uh coming into pilot because I, you know, that that's an experience I hadn't had in the previous two companies. Oh, I just really touched you share that because uh I personally went through something very similar and uh it was super eye-opening just having that feedback come back and then eventually working through for me, I am incredibly conflict avoidant. If I could, I would just hide in a cave. Uh, and then I realized over time and through a lot of coaching and continuous development, um, you know, like you spoke about, like 
conflict is not always bad, right? I think sometimes we have this perception, you know, as I was growing up, it was like, oh, conflict is not a good thing or like culturally it's not a good thing. And yet it's kind of where the good stuff happens. It's like when people are able to be sort of compassionate and respectful and laid out on the table, you may find better solutions and better outcomes from it. And um, yeah, I, 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 I talk about this because I think, especially for students, um, Sometimes there's this desire to go solo because then you'll have less conflict, but actually, you know, we're missing out on some great, great interactions and great opportunities to develop. Yeah, absolutely. And then to go back to your kind of direct previous question, you know, I was like, how do we resolve conflict? Well, first, we've gotten a lot better at it because I think we've, we've mostly kind of sorted out our, our issues over the past 15 years. And it, so if you're, if you're coming at it from a place of there, there, there is sincere mutual trust and respect. And, you, you know, for me, it's like I had hangups about feeling like I had earned my place at the table, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and so, like, challenge it, things that felt like they were challenging that made me react in a counterproductive way. When I have it, once I worked through those things, it's like, oh, okay, we're having a disagreement. Like, we're both reasonable people. We both trust each other. Um, Let's make sure that we're working off of the same fact base here. Yes. Like maybe that's maybe yeah. that's the issue. So like let's make let's check if we're if we have the same information. And if we do, great. Um, we probably have two reasonable opinions that just happen to be different, and we just need to make a decision about you know whose lane whose call is this? Because some things are my call. They're in my they're in my kind of sphere. Some things are you know. Jeff's call, some things are Wasim's call. And, you know, you can really, you can like pull the card if you need to say like, hey, this is a deal breaker for me. But otherwise, we're making a hundred decisions every day. Like I, I'm not going to micromanage, I don't have time nor the interest to micromanage everything that these folks are doing. They're highly capable. They're better than me at their, the stuff that they're doing. So let them do what they're doing. Let me do what I'm doing. We'll make sure that we're aligned on, on the, the, the big ticket items for sure. Um, and then you just let it go. You like disagree and commit. Let's move on. We've got a million other things to do. I love it. I'm going to say that again. Let it go. Disagree and commit. And I think that was probably the hardest lesson I had to learn in my early career is that it's just really hard to let go, uh, especially when we're smart people who have a lot of education. We want to get things done. And so letting go, disagree and committing because we just can't do everything ourselves. And so uh, thank you for sharing that and reinforcing that message. And I know it might seem awkward in the beginning to do that, but then it's like, oh, you know what? We're going to, um, you know, win the war and not like scrimmage over this battle, right? It just makes sense in the long term to have that North Star and know where we're going. All right, let's bring it back to Pilot. Uh, you have had a ton of experience already, this lived experience of being challenged with uh, small businesses with accounting. Um, tell me a little bit more about the early days of Pilot. How did you go through to figure out, you know, product user fit? Uh, what was that experience like? And did you reach out to networks to learn more about other small businesses? And then how did you crystallize the first couple of product features and products in the portfolio? Yeah, so when we were deciding what we wanted to do next, you know, what were the parameters on this? We we knew that we wanted to solve a, a business problem. We we like don't have a consumer bone in our bodies. We're just we know that we live in business land, not consumer land. So we knew we were going to solve a business problem. 
the businesses that we understand the best are small businesses and startups because that's what we've done primarily. Uh, and then we also had our experience with our previous companies and, and, and this observation of there, there's no clear best-in-class provider for bookkeeping, for other financial services. Um, and that hasn't changed over the past 10 years, which is like the, the, it was the thing that was mind-blowing from like 2008 to 2018, or I guess 20, 2007 to 2017. Um, and also we, we can sort of observe that there's kind of a rising tide of businesses, financial platforms moving online. You know, it's like, yeah, your pay, of course your payroll's online now. Of course your expense reimbursement system is online now. Of course you like handle your vendor payments online now. And so everything is, you know, moving towards these electronic formats. You can, there are APIs, there's structured data that you can, you can manipulate in software. Great. Um, against that, we, uh, we did a lot. We, we we interviewed a bunch of people, basically. Like we, we, we talked to a bunch of people in the back office of various small and mid-market companies, legal teams, accounting teams, HR teams, what have you. Where is the pain? Like, where is the pain? Where are the problems that haven't been solved yet? And I mean, the, the unambiguous loudest theme in that research was on the finance and accounting side. And it, like in particular, the monthly close, getting your books done, like maintaining your books is a nightmare for small businesses. Um, and so that was, that was a good foundation. Like our, it's like our own experience triangulated with this feedback from other people who have this pain. And then you can triangulate that with the market. And as you look at the market, the size of the market is staggering. Fun fact, about one in every hundred people in the U.S. does bookkeeping, like full or part time. Like if you walk down the street and you like you pass a pizza shop and a nonprofit and a startup and a, you know, a dentist office, like somebody is toiling in the back office trying to solve this problem like de novo for that business. And that, that is simply not the way that it's going to be forever. The question is, who's going to make that not be the case? Um, and it, it has a convenient property if you're trying to build a business, which is, again, it's basically legally required. It's not a nice to have. It's a, it's a, it's a must have. And so you have this, and it, and it applies to every business. Like every business has to file their taxes. Every business has to do their books. So if you do the market analysis, you're just like, it's like a staggeringly large market. So if you can be successful, even with in a small percentage of that market, you've built like a hugely, hugely successful, profitable public company. And we're all like very pleased with ourselves. Um, so if you take all of these things together, you know, it's like the market size, the market analysis, our own experience, and then talking about validating our experience against other people that pointed us towards the financial back office. And then our initial wedge into that was bookkeeping specifically as a very, as one of the earliest highest trust relationships that businesses tend to start with a third-party provider. Okay. I got to ask you the recursive question. Do you a pilot use pilot for yourself? Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. First <laughs> off, doing bookkeeping without pilot's tools is not very fun. Um, so I, yeah. So uh, no, we definitely use pilots to produce pilots own financials, um, which is, yeah, it's like important dog fooding, but also is. um, actually is better than doing it any other way. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. 
So um, maybe I could dive into a little bit that you had touched upon. You really enjoy the R&D work. You really enjoy the technical work. You've been increasingly also enjoying um, this part of the work that um, really is about ops and people. And I was fascinated, fascinated by um, your philosophy of people plus software. And so you've made this decision to also include this community of dedicated finance experts um, while automating, as you said earlier, a lot of the bookkeeping functions and the accounting functions in the first place. So how did that decision come about and how has that evolved? Yes. Yeah, so, so, uh, I mean, one of the very earliest observations was that businesses don't want to buy more software. They want their problems solved. Uh, so in, in general, folks are not interested in like yet another tool that they need to like set up and manage and like use day over day or month over month to accomplish some finance or accounting task. They just want to know that the problem is solved by someone they trust who has their back if they have questions so that they can uh, like a focus on, you know, you know, you start a business to like bring something into the world, right? You want to mostly focus on that. So for the parts that are kind of the low level kind of compliance oriented parts, let somebody who's better than you do it and how they do it almost doesn't matter. Like the fact that we use software to accomplish this and that gives you a better work product and like these insights that you don't get anywhere else, the, the how behind it almost doesn't matter. What you care about is the end result, which is like you have great clean books, useful insights, and you have like a person who you, you know and you trust you can ask questions of. And then on top of that, though, we can also be the strategic partner to you, like a person who can get on the phone with you and help you plan and make better decisions about your business based on the data and based on data that, you know, we're aggregating that nobody else is going to have access to. So it was always going to be people plus software. And it, it, the interface is we solve the problem for you. We're not selling you yet another tool. That makes sense. That makes a ton of sense. So instead, you've created a subscription model. It's not just purchasing um, the software itself. It actually always comes with um, a, a, a uh, financial advisor who you can trust to help you interpret the results. And I think that's such an important theme because I see so many companies out there that are like, we're going to build you dashboards that will give you insights. But it's hard. Most people don't know how to read data. and Most people don't know even how to interpret insights. And so having that... Um, that human touch really, really does make a big, big difference. Well, and the, the, the dashboards are only as useful as the quality of the underlying data. And that's the other place where people can get pretty tripped up. Like if you don't have, if the books aren't accurate, what's the dashboard on top of them going to tell you? Spot on, spot on. Well, you know, you've been at Pilot now, you know, running this company with Wasim and Jeff for five years, I believe. So you've built this incredible team. So lots and lots of individuals. And I'm sure you've been involved in hiring a lot of people as the company has grown. Uh, you have a very, very particular uh, philosophy around this. And I was hoping that you could take some time to share what that is, because it really is unique. And you're really at the forefront of that. Yeah, absolutely. So um well, I mean, while being a real like while being a realist about why we we do this, like why why do I work so hard building this company? And it, you know, a lot of that is about the economic upside of having a successful startup, right? For sure. Um, it, you know, taking that as a given, 
Um, another thing that is really important to me is the tremendous opportunity and I would say obligation that you have as an employer. Um, you know, there are a, a lot of decisions that you're making explicitly or implicitly through the way that you hire and the way that you conduct yourselves, you know, as a company and, and, and uh, you know, in support of employees at the company. And so I take that I take that responsibility very seriously. Um, and so, you know, our company values, the way that we think about uh, kind of the employee life cycle and supporting employees, the way that we think about our recruiting strategies, um, they're all an extension of, of, of like values into the world. And so you've got you, you have values, whether or not you say what they are. And so, you know, being explicit about them and then, you know, uh, living up to them is really important to me. Um, I think one one particular um, aspect of this that you, you and I had talked about before, so just maybe to highlight it in particular, is um, one of the one of the things that Pilot um, it is maybe most known for uh, on the hiring front is um, kind of creating space for and and changing the narrative around hiring folks who have records um, into the all of these. I mean, great, phenomenal tech jobs that have great benefits and great pay and um, all this career growth potential. Like it's like the economic upside again of, of being at a tech company is so tremendous and can really change the lives of people and their families. And so um, making sure that we're intentional about uh, being a, a place where folks from a, a wide range of backgrounds, including folks who are formerly incarcerated um, can, can, like get in the door and, and be successful has been really important. So we've done a lot of work on, on, uh, yeah. So kind of hiring and supporting folks with records. Um, and, and this is across a, a bunch of different functions of the company, like folks in engineering, like folks on the operations side, support sales, like re really everywhere. Um, and it's, it's not, it's like, it's not like it's an active charity. It's like, we find think these people are really good at what they do. And, you know, your loss if you other companies don't recognize that there's all of this talent that may just um, not pattern match super easily against the the ways that folks have hired into the tech industry in the past. Um, so that's super important. I'm happy to, I don't know if you have specific questions about this, but I'm happy to talk in more detail about it. But that's really important to me. And it's important to me because it's the right thing to do, but also because it's actually good for the business. It's so, so wonderful and so beautiful uh, that you do that. Um, how did you find your way into that sort of work? You, yeah, I mean, was it through the volunteering at San Quentin that you learned about the population and got to know individuals? Was it through something prior to that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think everyone everyone has their own journey into uh caring about the the kind of carceral state but uh yeah i mean i, I think that this started for me with an interest in the, in the law and how the law uh impacts our lives and i i first um started volunteering at san quentin kind of under under those auspices um uh but what you know what happens is you, you like you you if you're going inside of a prison regularly you like meet a bunch of folks who are like super smart super talented uh, are in some cases they're going to need jobs at some point, and you're like, well, heck, 
I need a salesperson. I need an engineer. Like I need a, you know, a customer support person. Like, would you like to, I like it, it would be my pleasure if you, if once you get out, you could work uh, at this company because we're absolutely in need of talent, talented folks like you. So I think it comes from like, who do you know? Like who, who are you in community with? Who are you spending time with? Um, And realizing that, uh, there are tons of super talented folks who happen to currently be in prison or who, who maybe used to be in prison. And this is, you know, outside of pilot, this is, this is like a very central uh, kind of part of my, 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 my life outside of work. Um, there, there, you know, I, I run a house for folks who are uh, recently out of prison who uh, like need transitional housing, but maybe can't afford housing on the open market um, there's a very, um, amazing, and that, that house is like, is like run by and for folks who, uh, are formerly incarcerated at, at no cost. Uh, there's a phenomenal group of kind of current and aspiring software engineers called underdog devs, uh, where we're, we've like built up a community and like a stipend program to help folks, um, pivot their careers into software engineering if, you know, c- coming from a background where you, you face a tremendous employment discrimination, usually if you, if you have a, in particular, a felony conviction um, on your record. And so kind of creating the space and the support network and like a referral network to help folks land jobs um, through, through that community. And again, I think what's important about that is again, it's kind of by and for folks who are formerly incarcerated. So like really centering the folks who are impacted in the strategy and, and like the work that is done. Um, so I, like a lot of my time outside of work is, is spent on prison stuff. Uh, but I, it's, it's, it's wonderful that it can be connected to the work, like the work at work and the work outside of work are deeply connected in that it's like spending your time on extending your values into the world, um, while also building a really great business. And that, that's been like a deeply satisfying, um, dimension to my adult life is being able to keep these things all connected. I'm so glad we took time to dig into the story. Uh, It was the one that actually attracted me the most to sort of explore this topic. And uh, it's hard to bring uh, our life life with our work lives. And when we can do that, we're really, really fortunate. So final question before I hand it over to students. Um, We actually had a group on this on Monday. We discussed this at length and then we voted on it. Uh, I'm not going to share with you what the students had voted on, but we're curious, like, this is your third startup, if you're willing to talk a little bit about what you see for the future. At some point, you know, you've raised $160 million, um, the investors are looking for their returns. What does that look like? What does the exit look like? Yeah, well, and I think this goes back to, you know, kind of what what is the shape of the company? What's the business model? What's the size of the market that you're tackling? And we were very intentional in starting Pilot about tackling a market of a size where there was a very, I think, clear, strong path to staying independent, indefinitely, like building out a suite of products uh, that allow you to continue growing as an independent company indefinitely. And so I, I certainly think the most likely outcome for Pilot is that we, you know, stay independent, we IPO and you know, at some point I'll retire and my full-time job will be decarcerated in California. But for now, I'm very, very happy uh, continuing to be at the helm, building this really remarkable company with this incredible group of people. 
Well, we will all be cheering you along and hopefully you might hire some of our students at some point for internships and whatnot. So uh, with that, I'm super, super, super thankful for the conversation. We have a ton of questions. Uh, we're going to go into student questions now. Let me start with, let's see, I can organize through this. Number one, uh, what are pilot.com's core values? You said that whether or not you state them, uh, you know, you're going to have them. So what are your core values and how do they contribute to the work culture and ethos? Yeah. Um, so we, we do have values and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what our actual company values are. And that's like, that maybe not the totality of the story, right? You know, there's a lot of texture to folks, you know, hundreds of people coming together to work. Uh, together and collaborate every day, but I'll, I'll, I'll literally just tell you what the values are, and and then maybe like kind of why, why they are there. Um, and I think the the theme, the the meta theme for the values is that you, I think you'll see that it's very rooted in um, quality and collaboration, and like wanting to do the right thing by each other. So the first value is care more than they expect, and that's true about how we engage with our customers. That's true about how we engage with each other, uh, with candidates, um, but but care more than they expect and create delight through, through that care. Build trust through that care. Um, get the details right. Um, another value is do it well or don't do it, um, which can be a little, that, that one can cause, that can start some, some, some arguments sometimes, but uh, you know, it's important to focus, uh, you know, maximize, uh, your commitments behind what what actually matters the most, and, and like actually follow through on them, build it well. If you're not really hitting the mark with like the core value prop, the core thing that you're trying to do, um, it do, being distracted by other things is not going to help you. So you know, focus on what matters, do it well, or don't do it. Uh, the next value is fix the systemic issue. Yeah. Um, so. You know, every failure is an opportunity, but only if we take the time to learn from it, um, especially in, in the work that we do, which is like kind of complex, often very subjective finance and accounting uh, activities. Um, you know, if some if you know, if there's like a mistake somewhere, it's, it's, it's basically never someone's fault. It's like, could we have built a more resilient system, make it easy to do the right thing? Um yeah, so make sure that we're being rigorous in our root cause analysis and make sure that we're fixing the systemic issue. Uh, the next value is, I, there There aren't that many more, I promise. Um, the next value is share the work and the win. So it's only a success if we get there together. Um, you know, have each other's backs, be a helper, um, and take the time to celebrate together. Uh, and then the last value is seek justice. So use Pilot as a platform to actively correct injustice in the world. Wow. The last one is like front and center when it comes to the, the work that you do with incarcerated. That's wonderful. You fake that in very, very deliberately. Yeah. And I think what's important to highlight about this is like Pilot is not. This is an incredibly high performing team like the. The, the team at Pilot is so phenomenal, like across all of our departments, an incredibly high performing team, an incredibly successful company on an incredible trajectory. We're not, it's not like we're making a compromise here. It's like doing the right thing is a part of being successful. And I hate it when folks try to, you know, if pe people try to imply that that's like not what's going on sometimes. It's like, hey, 
no, we're great and we're a diverse and inclusive team. And we have all these people from a wide range of backgrounds that have come together across disciplines. And, you know, it, it, it all comes together. Um, it's not like we're making trade-offs here. So I'm very passionate about that. I think it's amazing. You've almost found this like secret, right? There's this incredible population of folks that very few people tap into because of whatever reason, right? You know, like social reasons or, you know, um, risk reasons or whatever it might be. And yet um, you've harnessed that and you're helping others also harness it over time. And so it's win-win. It's, it's, a, it's across the board, as you said. Um, people just don't realize it and you've, you've uncovered it. All right, next question. Uh, the question is, did you ever encounter opposition in your decision to hire incarcerated folks? And how did you overcome that? Basically, no, honestly, uh, the, you know, there, there was some internal discussion kind of setting up the framework for how, and it's not just about hiring. It's like, let's make sure we're actually setting folks up for success. And like, we have the internal infrastructure to do that. But I think once we had that commitment, the, like what, what, what precisely would we be worried about here? Because if you, you know, the, the we're, we're interviewing someone there's like our full interview process, the same that we would with anybody else. You know, we're, we're, we're evaluating someone on what they bring to the table as who they are today, not who maybe they used to be. Um, so what's, uh, you know, what's the issue? It, yeah, I think there can be some theoretical like PR concerns here. And it's like, eh, suck it up. It's going to be fine. And it has been fine. Like there's, there's been, it's been totally fine. We've, so what we've succeeded in doing is hiring a bunch of really talented people. And that's been like, the consequence. What, let me ask like a, a sort of a follow-up question to that. Why are other companies so hesitant or why haven't they also uncovered this incredible sort of population of folks who are incredibly smart and talented? Uh, well, I think some of it is around bias that is rooted sometimes in, in like bad, in like bad data or bad information. Like you, like maybe beliefs about, um recidivism rates or what have you they're they're like frankly actually just they're just wrong like if you, you you know i think i can i can be very confident from my my personal experience but also from the data with let me tell you i've had way more like issues with you know uh some new grad misbehaving no offense to folks in this group that then like a person who did 20 years and got out on a life sentence after a commutation. Like it, no contest with where the issues show up in the workplace. So, you know, you, it, it, what, what is this? It's like, you, what's this really about? You, you're bringing together a bunch of people to be adults together and do work together every day. And like, so every once in a while, someone's like not going to work out like for, for, you know, for like performance reasons or, you know, they, they do something that's inappropriate or, you know, some kind of misbehaving or what have you. And you, that's like why you have an HR team and you have good policies and procedures and you, you don't build a company, you know, where nothing bad ever happens, but, you know, you're responsible about how you, you know, evaluate folks you bring into the company and then like you react as responsible adults within clear frameworks when there are issues. And then you're just people doing a job together. I love it. I love it. I think it's important to actively counter out, counteract bias because it's implicit and sometimes we don't even know it. And I think you've sort of cracked it open to make it much easier and safer to hire um, a diverse and 
a group of folks and onboard and ensure success uh, regardless of background. So uh, you sort of set the stage for that and made it a lot easier to, to do what's right. And that's not always the case everywhere. All right, next question. What are some of the biggest differences that you can remember between starting your first startup out of college, including fundraising, development, hiring, management, et cetera, versus pilot now? Yeah, well, I mean, it's definitely easier if you've done it before in a bunch of ways. You know, having a successful exit makes fundraising much easier. You know, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was, we're, we're fortunate, we're so fortunate, but we're, we're fortunate that fundraising for the second company was relatively easy coming off of the success of the first company, doubly so for pilot coming off of the second acquisition. Um, so some like the credibility that you, you, you gain, um, from those experiences for, for fundraising, also for hiring, you know, oh, hey, these founders know what they're doing. Like they've done this before. They're going to build a responsible company. You know, it helps with hiring as well. And then you also just like, you've done the mechanics before, you know, it's like setting up the infrastructure for a company. You've got, you know, you need to incorporate, you need you know, comp vans and you get like a, a stock compensation strategy and you administer payroll and, you know, when the toilet gets plugged, you got to shovel it because nobody else is going to do it because you're a 10 person startup initially. Like you, you, you've done it all before and, and it's easier to do it again. So I think just like the wisdom of having done it before and being a little bit older makes everything uh, easier. We really do a lot of toilet plunging though in the early days. So if you if you don't like view that as part of the purview of a founder, you maybe what you want to be is like the first engineering hire and maybe not a founder because <laughs> um, you're the shit umbrella, which is good. I, I like being the shit umbrella, but it's not for everybody. <laughs> maybe not every day. <laughs> maybe every there's day. also a lot of joy in it, but you know, yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, I think sometimes we forget that um, startups are not that glamorous, right? There's so much of it. Like there's so much work. Are you not I work so hard, <laughs> but but I love what I do. I love who I work with. The upside in the success case is transformative, and that that's you know that's why I do it. All right, maybe the last question. I get to ask the final one after that. Um, in hindsight, one can justify that everything happens for a reason. If you could go back in time, let's say five years to when Pilot was just started, are there any are there any things you would go back and tell yourself to do differently? Yes, uh, yes. I'm thinking about if there are any that can be explained in a way that's not super in the weeds. Um, uh, things that I would probably want to discuss with myself from five years ago. Uh, you know, everyone always says, pay more attention to pricing and packaging than you think you need to. And then nobody ever does. So I, we should have, not that we made any huge mistakes here, but some, some kind of uh, expensive lessons around pricing and packaging that I think we would go back and, and revisit. Um, I think, um, maybe on the operations side, 
building out uh, some of the leadership team earlier so that some of like we could delegate to experts more earlier, I think might have served us well for making sure that we're kind of building the right scalable infrastructure from the very beginning. The, the way that the company started, literally Jeff with Steve and I did the bookkeeping manually for our initial customers when we had no software. And, and we actually have stayed kind of shockingly close to the, the details on this in a way that has served us very well in some ways. But um, you don't ever want to be a bottleneck. Like you as an individual don't ever want to be a bottleneck on your own, um, the company's growth. So maybe a little bit of reflection on building out the team on the right timeline to, to really be able to delegate out the expertise. We did a lot of things right, I think. Uh, and so I have a lot of very positive reflections on, you know, we, it like COVID was like a sort of a weird black swan event for, for businesses. And we, we weathered that remarkably well due to some choices that we made around kind of managing burn and being smart about fundraising timing um, so there's a lot of stuff that I look back on and I, I'm like really proud of the, the discipline that the team had that gave us optionality to navigate COVID in a smart way. But those are some things that I, yeah, I, I would reflect on. Pricing and packaging. Ah, so everything is pricing and packaging. I don't, don't ever underestimate it. <laughs> All right. Final question. Since we went back five years, let's go back to freshman year. Uh, if you could tell yourself one thing when you were a freshman at MIT, what would that be? I mean, in a sense, I, it's like I wouldn't change my life for the for anything the way that's played out. And so it's like, buckle up. It's going to be a fun ride. I mean, maybe I would say that chemistry degree, you're not really going to use it. <laughs> maybe what I would tell myself. But I don't I don't know what I would I would he hesitate to. To, to tip over anything that might cause some some weird sequence of events to happen differently, such that I you know wouldn't have met Jeff and Wasim when I did. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.